listening to Noise Extra. I'm Gray Holger, here with my co-host Tara Connolly. Hello. And Mike Connolly. Hello. And our guest today, Adam Higgins of Vombus Records. Hey, Adam. <laughs> Howdy. Get a kick out of that intro? <laughs> yeah, on Bombus Records of much acclaim. <laughs> Renowned Bombus Records, all two releases. Yeah, what, Concord 79? Is that what it is? And, uh, Concord Affair 79, because uh, there's Con- multiple Concord movies. But True, Concord Affair 79, which is Stelvio Cipriani. That's the man. And then the soundtrack to the movie we're going to talk about today, well, movie and soundtrack, of course, which is most commonly known as Last House on Dead End Street, a real nasty film with a really wild soundtrack, which you figured out how to, I would say reissue, but just issue. Yeah. <laughs> right? So how did this idea to do this soundtrack come about and why? Vombus was me and my good buddy and partner, Brian Block, and we both really liked that movie, of course, like anyone that's seen the movie. And we had already put out Concord Affair 79. <clears throat> and Last House on Dead and Street was already like a thing we talked from the minute we talked about having a record label. We were like, that would be incredible to do. And at the time we were talking about it, which was a long time ago, people knew the iconic tracks from it because a lot of those, the, it's all from the KPM library of like production music. And so a lot of the stuff on there, people already knew. If you just Googled and went on like forums for nerds, people had could tell you what the tracks were. But no one, no, there wasn't even, you know, how there's those like bootleg compilations of all the music from The Shining that isn't on The Shining soundtrack. No right. one had even done like a bootleg of all the KPM music from it. But you could just find it if you looked it up and we were like, wow, so I'm sure this would be great. People, it's under, underappreciated, underknown. And so we found all the ones we could, which I, I did a lot of fact checking on this because I have a bad memory with Brian. I texted Brian. I only found out about we were doing this while I was already at work. I'm doing this at work. So apologies if anything I say <laughs> is false. I'm mainly apologizing to Brian, who will be the one who knows if I'm wrong. But according to him, it was really most of it. You could find the, the David Fanshaw track is like the choral one that happens a couple different times. And the Eric Peters is a lot of the other kind of really abrasive synthy stuff and like weird extended technique stuff. And then, of course, the Alan Hawkshaw, when the guy's whipping the lady, which really stands out amidst all the other music on there. But that was easy to find. And then the one that was incredible that we found was the Eureka moment is the Ron Geeson tracks, which in the movie, do you guys even know? So I don't know how familiar you guys are. The tracks in the, on the record, it's the end of both sides, end of the locked groove. Do you know, for, I don't know how recent you guys watched the movie, do you know when that happens in the movie, either of them? Literally watched it last night. Mm -hmm. Gray watched it this morning. (laughs) But please tell us and the listeners exactly when those happen. So those, it's like literally when people are getting stabbed, they're used as a sound effect for a second. It goes, and it's like a synth sound. And somehow, I don't even remember which of it was. Could have been me, could have been Brian, probably Brian. I'll give Brian credit. I don't remember. Someone just figured out that weird sound when they get stabbed is familiar. And those Ron Geeson records are like some of the best KPM records. There's Electrosound 1 and Electrosound 2. Those are all from the B side of Electrosound 2 is all just 30 second grinding synth sounds. And so they just used it as a sound effect towards the end when people are getting stabbed. And we were like, oh, my God, we did it. We figured out the sound effects that we can put. the." And the craziest thing is that's the best part is a lot of those are just songs on records. But for those Ron Geeson ones. The people that license it, APM handles KPM in the States, and the sound quality that they had of their masters was bad. So we wrote to Ron Geeson, and we're like, hey, man, do you have masters for this? The ones that the uh, people that control it don't sound very good. And he was like, yeah, I gave them the masters they have, but I can send you the same thing I sent them. But he has all of them, and they're 30 seconds on the record, but they're just like unedited minutes of him jamming. And on the record, they're just called like Electro Rhythm 1, Electro Rhythm 2, Electro Rhythm 3. But he has them all with these really funny titles that are like made up scientific sounding words by putting, I think, Agro Rhythm or something is one of the ones on there. But like he has like titles for all of them, and they're all these like multi minute jams. And I think if you really go deep, at least back when we were doing this, you can find a lot of it on the APM website. Because they're like a company trying to license music, a lot of it is available. And if you like dig in through their weird interface, it's all on there. But anyway, we were very excited to find that. And we made them lock grooves 
because they just cut off abruptly. He clearly was just like recording random stuff and didn't have any purpose or like he didn't edit it. So that's why we did like grooves on it. But we he talking to him was the highlight of the whole thing because he's a really funny guy. He would not email us for a long time. And then when he heard email back, he would invent a joke excuse. One time he wrote back and said that he was uh, working on a history of spanners, which is a UK word for wrenches. And we, at first we were like, what are you talking about? And he, we had to rather figure out he's just making shit up because he's a funny guy. But anyway, that man has a ton of crazy stuff. And someone else who's more active in the Vomus record should be putting out more Ron Geese and Reed. <laughs> well, anyway, that's a did, did free we... improv, long answer to a simple question. No, it was amazing. Was he aware of its use in this movie? Did you explain to him what you were getting the sounds for? Yeah, we told him why we were only interested in these two very specific songs of his, and he had never heard of it, and he said, maybe I'll check it out or whatever. But no, he had not seen or heard of the movie, because that's the thing. Anyone that did those library records, their stuff is in so much different... And I think a guy like that, that's, he's what? Some no budget horror movie in the US? I don't care about that. I'm sure he probably would like it if he saw it, but he had not seen or heard of it when we were corresponding with him. In an interview with Stephen Thrower in Nightmare USA, Roger Watkins says that he added effects to the songs on the movie. Is the soundtrack with those or totally without those? It's just the actual source tracks. This, the soundtrack we put out is direct from KPM, so it's not whatever they have in the movie, because the only source of the movie is like a release print. There isn't even like a known negative or like elements to go off of for anything like that. So if that if we had a way to do that, we would have been interested. But honestly, having like obsessively listened to those songs for like mastering and stuff and watching the movie, I don't really know what he's talking about. Like I said, the geese and stuff is super edited. And like that, there's the, the David Fanshawe track with the choral stuff. There's two versions. And one of them is basically put through like a flanger, which when you're watching the movie, you're like, oh, they just played that song from before, but put it through a pedal. But then you listen to the record and you're like, no, they actually did that on the record. Those are two versions that are like separate on the record. So who knows? It seems like the man was on a lot of drugs back then. Maybe he thinks he put it through a flanger, even though it's a different track <laughs> on the same record. That's what I was going to say. It is documented by him himself. And we'll get into this when we talk about the movie after you go back to work. But he was definitely on amphetamines the entire making of this movie. So, yes, his memory may not be the most accurate. So you just got in touch with KPM and pitched. We want to license this list of tracks for I mean, yeah, pressing on vinyl. Care. They don't care what you're doing. You write them, you're like, hey, here's the tracks we're doing. And they're, who the fuck are you? We've never heard of you. Why are you doing this? And we're like, oh, we're doing like a thousand copies. And we're like, whatever. Like they, we're, you're so small potatoes. That's just, they don't need any details. They're like, how many copies? Okay. And I don't even remember what we paid for licensing, but it was not a lot because I think it based on how many copies you're going to be. I know, because like I said, you can go to the APM website and just pretend you're like licensing for whatever, at least back when we were doing it. You could just go through their whole catalog and stream stuff and add it to your cart. And then someone reaches out to you and is like, what's your deal? Who are you? How are you like doing this? But yeah, no, they just have it all on there. And if you'll pay them, it's, I think, so Any anybody who wants to do any library music reissues, it's way more straightforward than if you have to track down the rights and masters separately for like normal music. Did all of these have a previous vinyl issue somewhere then? That was how this stuff was distributed and, and used back then a lot, right? Yeah, they all were from KPM records. And the only, like I said, I can't remember how long we made the Geeson tracks, which he had like extended versions of. They're longer than they are on the original, but there's 30 second excerpts from each of those tracks on the original Electrosound 2. You mentioned the Alan Hackshaw track, which is titled as Beat Me Till I'm Blue. <laughs> that's the, that is the total oddball. All this stuff is strange, and that's the least strange, thus making it the strangest piece on a record like this. Was there any question ever about including that or not because of the, the vibe change, or it's just too good it had to be on there? 
No, it was a, I, there was a lot of debate about the sequencing, like where that goes <laughs> in the middle of all of it. But it's so iconic. That's like probably the most recognizable piece of music in the movie. There was zero chance that everyone was going to be in there. But I, again, I wish we had all our emails from when we were doing this because we were like obsessive about every little thing. And I'm sure there's like a 50 email thread about like where that should go on there. But that reminds me of something that I got Brian's permission to reveal, a secret that not many people know. There, We spent years trying to make sure we had everything. And there's one scene towards the beginning when the two girls are talking about like hooking or something. They're just like, they're having like a depresso memory chat in a room. And it might even be like diegetically, they're like putting on a record and it's just some chill, whatever jazz. We couldn't find that. And it was like bothering us, even though like, I don't even like that song. I think it's like a boring song and it's like inconsequential and unmemorable the movie. But we were like, we have to do it. We got the sound effects for the geese and we have to find this boring jazz track at the scene of the start, but we never did. Brian was convinced it was a Brian Bennett track based on just what it sounds like and that he did a ton of records for KPM, but, but we never ID'd it. So someone can trump us and do an authoritative reissue if they ever ID the Brian Bennett track. Do you guys even remember the scene I'm talking about to know the scene? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah the ladies are like, <laughs> you might as well do it. Like I was sitting at home, I was bored. I might as well make some money. But yeah, do you remember the jazz? <laughs> yes, and I remember the record I'm thinking, sorry, oh, that's what have it on the record. It's a I was thinking that's what these babes are listening to. Oh, cool. They seem cool. But yeah, that's the one song, and that would have been even trickier because you know, you got one iconic synth organ jam. That's one thing. But to then also have a sleepy jazz track, we probably would have just put it at the end of the other side or something. But <laughs> oh wait, I even wrote down a quote from that. She said I didn't think I'd feel bored by doing nothing, but I do. <laughs> <laughs> the artwork, did you work with Roger Watkins on this as well? Did you talk to him about any of this or license the art? Cause it's got a lot of stills from no, the movie. I, if memory serves, I think he was dead by the time we did this. Do you know, have you looked he up? Pa he, he, he passed away in 2007. Yeah, so we were doing this 20, we were working on this from like 2013 to 2016, and then it came out 2016. So he had already passed. The artwork is almost entirely scans of the, the print that Brian had, which I believe is also the one that's hidden on the corruption Blu-ray that Vinegar Syndrome put out, which isn't the only known print of that movie, I don't think, or it could be. Anyway, this is shit that I'm going to make Brian mad if I say it. But anyway, he so we sent it to Photochem and had them like do a like proper optical transfer. The file, the original files are these astronomically high res things because we were like, we have to do this to the maximum. But we really like that you can see the filmware because it's like a real grindhouse beater old print. And so, yeah, all those, which is why. And again, this is some we didn't care about anyone appreciating what we were doing. We really liked that when Photochem scanned it, it includes the optical soundtrack and the sprockets. Even though most people probably don't even know what that is. We were like, we're gonna put a little bit of that in there. That's fun. Even though no one's even gonna know what that is. But yeah, the, and then the only artwork that isn't from just like scans of the print is the facsimile we did of like a KPM track list. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. An insert. And that's really funny because like we did it as accurately as we could to what those KPM back covers are like. But because we're taking tracks from like a bunch of different records, the KPM records always have a theme or something, and it'll have a little descriptive sentence at the top that's like supernatural scary electro zaps or something. But it'll be like a, a sentence. But we because we like most of them, the Eric Peters stuff. And the Fanshawe stuff is like most of the soundtrack. So we were like, okay, those are the two we're using. And we like found a way to fuse the two sentence descriptions into one to like try and use all of the funny adjectives and make it one continuous sentence. But again, that's the kind of thing where like, how many people know what the back of a KPM record looks like? Not very many. Most people are probably like, wow, look at all this like gnarly film print. And oh, there's like weird 70s font, like with a bunch of details about the mood of the track. What is this? We were like, we don't care about that. This is how we would want it so we're doing it have you guys do you guys know what are you have you guys seen the back of kpm records I'm talking yeah. About? yes yeah so I, i'm sure you remember when i worked at the record store we got a huge oh, yes, exactly. of crazy library records like tons of stuff and i had to go through and and price all of it which is an insane thing to do because those things can range in value from 40 bucks or 10 bucks to 500 to a thousand dollars or more depending upon what it is 
It's scary how much of those I would have bought if I had money back then. I forgot about that. <laughs> but anyway, we love that. We love the funny little mood descriptions and all that. So we were like, 100%, got to have that in there. Doesn't matter that it's completely aesthetically discordant with every other part of the release. We're putting that on the insert. And then we're like, we're already doing something funny. We're going to have the fake made-up name, music supervisor credit on the other side, even though it's a guy that doesn't exist. <laughs> which is another joke no one gets no one knows that claude larson isn't a real person although i will say that's another thing i checked with brian about <clears throat> even though claude larson is a fake made-up name like all the names in the credits if you look on the internet movie database there's a guy named i think it's like jeff lamberg or something like that he was credited as music supervisor and because brian is special ops for like hunting down stuff like this he like found that guy on linkedin and chatted at him about linkedin i was like hey man did you really have anything to do with last house on dead end street it has your name on an internet movie database but it's not on anything else and the guy was like yeah i was buddy with rogers back then maybe i gave him some kpm records i don't know but uh, yeah i'm uh, happy you guys enjoy the music <laughs> the music supervisor is claude armand right is that it i thought it, yeah because claude larson is an actual library music guy but anyway that guy's fake jeff lamberg is real he's not credited in the print or anything he's just on gotcha. the movie database and yeah he was like he didn't seem to have a super clear memory either which makes sense for anybody that was hanging out with roger back then but anyway he seems to have gone on he's been a music supervisor music editor on all kinds of big hollywood stuff and he like wrote the movie nurse betty which is super funny i think that the guy that wrote nurse betty was like hanging out with roger watkins in the 70s. amazing i love it talking about aesthetics there's a hype sticker on the record <laughs> I forgot and about it, that. it uh mentions delia derbyshire who is not seen anywhere in the credits on the back really is that true? Oh, yes, I think. Okay, and here's why. This is more nerd stuff. So it's not just her. It's her and a couple other BBC Radiophonic people. But for some reason, I think because of BBC Radiophonic Workshop stuff, they had to use pseudonyms on KPM records. So, like, we are authentic to the KPM way it's listed, but they're using pseudonyms on those because I think they weren't supposed to do work for other things when they were doing BBC stuff. And again, I'm my phone is what I'm using. I can't check myself on this, but that's my memory. And it's the Celestial Cantible, Cantible, I don't know how you say it, but that's the track. That's the BBC people. What is it? If you have it in front of you, what does it say for the credits on that track? Yeah, I forget which of those is her, but if you look it up, those are all like pseudonyms for BBC people. This is the level we were at. It didn't even occur to us that is a contradiction and like people would not know that it's like a, a pseudonym because of like BBC licensing stuff. <laughs> this is a pretty ridiculous thing to track down, figure out. You had to ID all these tracks, find out where to get them from, and then also just make this record. It's a pretty wild thing that stemmed out of just the love of the film. Yeah, we just read honestly because it was like we wanted to have it. We were like, it's cool to stream these on the APM website or track down the expensive original KPM vinyl, but wouldn't it be cool to have all the stuff in the thing? So, yeah, that was really just it was a, a something where we were like, man, this would be an action. Because I remember at the time, I, I won't again, I'm not going to include Brian in this. I don't want to get him embroiled in any. I was really mad at the time that like Death Waltz and all those people, it'd be like, oh, the Poltergeist score. I'd be like, what the this is the Poltergeist scores and orchestral bullshit. We'd be like, meanwhile, they got the entire Last House of Dead End Street soundtrack just sitting on the APM website and people are too lazy to figure it out. So I just, it just was like, we were like, how are so many horror scores that are like boring, generic, and forgettable getting these lavish colored vinyl treatments? Meanwhile, one of the like craziest, most like experimental avant-garde scores in any horror movie is just sitting out there forgotten. We're trying to serve it justice. <laughs> and it also seemed to signal the end of Vombus Records. <laughs> that, but that was related to like personal life reasons. In a perfect world, we talk all the time. I won't. I can't even tell you because we'll talk about. We'll both separately be like, "Do you ever realize this score is really good and no one ever put it out?" And I'm not going to say them because who knows? It might come back someday. But my favorite, and Gray already knows this, but my favorite failed Vombus release was a collaborative reissue of the Quake soundtrack because obviously Trent was never going to license shit to us. We're nobody. But for reasons beyond the scope of this discussion, I used to be around the Sacred Bones office a lot and I would float this to Caleb because I was like, hey, 
you know what's really cool and would sell like gangbusters and is only as if you skip past the data track on the game disc is the Quake soundtrack. And at the time, Caleb was in touch with his like management or representation because they managed or represented other people they were working with. And so he sent a message and it was like, hello, we would be interested in, you know, doing a Quake soundtrack reissue if you guys were open to that and, you know, just let us know what you think. And they wrote back like, yeah, talk to Trent. He's into the idea. And guess what? He just did it himself like eight years later. Ah! <laughs> and, the thing, and you know what? It's I don't know if you guys have that. It's a great, uh, they did a very nice job. It's, it's a, a great beautiful. reissue. My objection to that was one of the things I was most excited about, which I remember, was to have a, a bonus seven inch with locked grooves of all the sound effects from the game, because he also did the sound effects and they fucking rule. And that would be incredible to just have locked grooves of the sound effects. And I'm so mad that he robbed us of that. We also had already done preliminary research about a like die hard edition with like actual leather, a die cut metal of a logo and all this, which that would also have been cool. But what I really care about is the loss of the potential locked groove seven inch of all the sound effects which is so good I'm, i shouldn't even be talking about it because someday maybe i'll make a bootleg myself but anyway that was the one that i was mad about because i can't really take credit for releasing a guy's own music but i'm like you didn't do it until after we told you it was a good idea <laughs> Trent Reznor owes me money <laughs> Before we do have to let you go, because yes, is if, if we have not established, Adam is doing this on his break at work. So this is a first for Noise Action. In so lieu of coffee. Thank you so much for doing this. What is your history with seeing Last House in Dead End Street? Way back in the day, I'm sure the first time I saw it was downloaded off of a torrent site. And then after watching it and being blown away, and I don't even have a specific memory because back in the days when you're just downloading a hundred movies every week, I remember being like, I have to get a real version of this. Like whatever 700 megabyte rip is insufficient for a movie of this caliber. And then you could get at the, whatever time when I was in my twenties and I saw it, there was the, the German CMV DVD. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? It has like, is, uh, is that the double disc or? I can't remember the, it has like a, the case is like the front is clear and it has like the mask on the disc. No, I don't know that. Anyway, if you don't know it, the main reason it's important now because the corruption secret version is better than that is it has an insane special feature where like whenever they made that in like the 2000s, they go to his house when he was still alive. And it's just, and it's this insane hoarder house in like upstate New York or something. And they just hang out with him for the day. And he's just like puttering around his like hoarder house. And it's real. I'm sure someone has it on YouTube or something now, but the special, whatever, I think the company was called CMV that did the German DVD that had like that. And I remember being like, wow. And that was when I started to look up into his other stuff and the hardcore and all that, because I was like, wow, this guy, this is a wild guy. And he's still out there being weird. Never really settled down and became a normal guy. But yeah, then eventually me and Brian were both projectionists. And then when you're a projectionist, you get into like film collecting. And eventually Brian had that print. And I think... And again, Gray might remember, I think, were you around when Cinefamily did like the 50 States of Horror that year? Do you know what I'm talking about? No, I don't remember specifically. I think the year that Cinefamily did that, they showed that print. So I got to finally see the print on the big screen, which is always the best. But so that's the hierarchy. Sometime in my 20s at 3 a.m., I watched a rip of it off a torrent site tracked down an overpriced out of print German import DVD where I watched all the special features. And then eventually a friend of mine had the print and we got to see it in the theater. And now we all can enjoy the soundtrack. Which another thing I want to go off on other people do soundtracks. Bombus Records always tried to not do the created too limited thing. Even though technically Last House on Dead End Street is out of print because I have 20 copies in a box in my house, you can readily find copies used for a very reasonable $15 to $17, which is how it should be. It's stupid that places underpress things just have false scarcity and drive prices up. So anyone interested, you can't get a copy from me or any of the people that distributed it, but they're all floating around out there. It's readily available for all to enjoy. Mm -hmm. Or just pretend like you're going to license it and sign up to the APM website. <laughs> yeah, or, and... or really go down a rabbit hole on the APM website. <laughs>
This is amazing. I'm so glad that you were able to join us here to give the history of the soundtrack because it is incredible and we're about to get into it and we're about to really get into the movie. So for anyone who hasn't seen Last House on Dead End Street, I think you can listen to us talk about it and then watch it. This this is not a movie. The spoilers oh, yes. are not <laughs> applicable to this movie. It actually will clear a lot of things up it, prior to viewing it. So it's probably recommended that you do. But before I we start talking about it, just real quick, do the track titles come from the actual titles on the site or, or some of them all, created all, by you? All the track titles are from the original KPM records, except... The Ron Geeson ones are his personal titles, which KPM couldn't be bothered to put on Electrosound Volume 2. But those are like from him saying, these are what I titled them. They just called it Electrorhythm and a Number, but he had titles for all of them. But no, they're all either from the KPM record or the Geeson ones are from him. Yeah, we didn't invent any titles. Thank you. That would drive me crazy later. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Adam. Really appreciate yeah, you taking. It was, it was an time. honor to go through the Looking Glass and be on a podcast I listen to. So, thank you for all that you guys do. <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you so much. We'll have to have you on for an extended time because this was a lot of fun. <laughs> mm-hmm, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I feel like I'm the most inconsequential person you've ever had on the show, which I feel like is going to be a tough title to beat. Guy that co-release that with another guy released two records. That's really like, <laughs> pretty but much also al- also. Very importantly, you were also the guy who sold Gray his insane car that he had for an incredible <laughs> amount of time. That almost I have killed all of us on no several occasions. Idea how it lasted as long as it did. So, oh, yeah, actually, that reminds me. One more quick thing I wanted to say: part of my my involvement in Noise Extra Lore. I didn't. I've met Jim Harris. And I never put this together until he talked about it on your show that when you guys, I don't remember the context, but he was talking about how he was at a Wolf Eyes Perrient show in Madison, which was yeah. the first show I ever booked. And I had, oh, you booked the show? and it had never come up that he was at that show. <laughs> and that, that show was a big deal. It was a show was a big deal for me too. So I just remember hearing him talk about that being like, wow, man, the show was a big deal for me, but I didn't know it was like a real touch point for another noise luminary. That's hey. Hey, well, hey. Thanks for booking that show. Hey, you know, Great job. you played that was the Wolf Eyes in your yeah. era. That was like, yeah, so that yeah. Was where you were at. Oh, amazing. Awesome. All right. Hey, we'll let you get back to work. Thank yeah. you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. Oh, yeah. Oh, that was great. That was uh, so great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Been friends with Adam for years from playing shows in Wisconsin. And then we were both living in LA. I'm really, happy that we got to hang out here and see some movies actually the first movie i saw in la i went to with adam so so it's always cool to catch up with him and was insane when he was running vombus and doing this like when your friend tells you they're reissuing this soundtrack <laughs> it's a crazy thing yeah absolutely and to get into this movie is this is a movie that we first saw tara and i first saw there was a couple video stores in lexington when we were living there, the one that we've referenced multiple times, certainly at home time is it was cut corner. It was a music store on the top and a video store in the basement. That was first time running El Topo first time right up our alley of any Argento, Fulci, yeah. et cetera. And this was when we were 18 and 98. So it's, you'd heard of a lot of these movies. We'd, I, I remember I had seen zombie, but I hadn't seen, some of the others and I read about them and oh my God, there's this store that actually has them in this town. It's great. But then a few years later, there was a very short lived video store called voodoo video that a guy named Jeffrey Scott Holland ran. And he, this was now into the two thousands, So DVDs were happening and he had the double disc DVD that I referenced and that, and it was, I don't even remember what, triggered us to rent well, we it i think fans it was of last house on the left too so, so well, i'm sure that reference like would just co- grab us which of course is why the movie is titled that it, much like many 70s exploitation movies there's a million titles mm-hmm. it was shot under and in the hour of death was the title it was shot under it was also maybe going to come out as cuckoo clocks of hell the fun house many titles but ultimately the distributor called it last house on dead end street to capitalize on that title but also it was just a time when we were so 
open to just renting anything. And we were just such movie hounds and, and underground movie hounds that we had to rent anything. And this stood out among anything we were watching at the time and still to this day does because it's really the, to call it a horror movie. It's the easy title to put it under, but this is truly a movie of pure nihilism. It's hatred. It's this frenetic energy that I find has not been captured in a way that it's captured here. And Gray, when you suggested we were going over a, a cool idea for an episode for October, obviously we love keeping October themed. When you threw that out, I was like, yes, I, it's been a while since we've revisited it. And there's something about this movie that has a very distinct, haunting, hateful quality that watching it again last night, oh my God, it Demented hit. and extreme misanthropy. Yeah. yeah. And, and, but it's it, also fueled by substance and fueled by perversion. Yeah. And that is coming directly from Roger Watkins, who is the director of this movie, from his mouth that- the budget of this movie was $3,000, but only $800 was spent on the movie because $2,200 was spent on amphetamines, and he was basically on amphetamines the entire making of this movie. I mean, the movie is berserk. Hateful is a great word for it. It is really sleazy, but not in a sexy way. We know where that term gets used for things that are sexy. This isn't that, although it has elements of sex in it. And I, it's funny talking to Adam about this. And I remember the first time I knowingly met him, which was actually maybe the second time we'd met. He had a, a mammal patch on. And that is who showed me this movie is Gary from Animal Disguise and Mammal. We used to watch a lot of movies together in the mm -hmm. early 2000s in Detroit. And he brought this miserable. It's the same double disc that you talk about with that blue cover, the kind of drawing painter cover of it instead of the more house photo or whatever else you see on some of the other available releases. And it's just a miserable nihilistic film with a crazy soundtrack. And with surprisingly for say $800 appears on screen, pretty decent production value for a 1972 shot student film level thing in an abandoned building. Right. Exactly. Yeah. This was shot in 72 and released in 77. And it was shot in an abandoned building on the university in upstate New York, which is where he lived. And just using those surroundings. And yeah, that Gary, obviously, shout out to Gary, has introduced all of us to some incredible movies. And mm -hmm. certainly always been one of our great friends and our great movie friends. And unfortunately, I don't know when we have had that double disc throughout the years, I don't know where it went, but for purposes of anyone wanting to watch it currently, there's two ways to really watch it. It is on the Tubi app, which we mentioned that app a bunch. It's crazy. It's what's on there sometimes. Wild what's on Tubi. I always say the, the main downfall is that there's commercials. So I, would be odd to watch this with commercials, but it is a free app and it's legit. So if you do want to see it that way, see it that way. But also as Adam mentioned on the corruption Blu-ray put out by vinegar syndrome, it is an Easter egg. And the way to watch it is you go to the main screen, the title, the menu screen, you go all the way down to the last selection. You hit the down button six times and then an upside down cross shows up on the corruption logo, and then you just hit play and then it plays. And it, as it, as he said, it, it is the print of the, of, of Brian and vinegar syndrome for about seven years has said, they're going to do this incredible restoration of it. It hasn't happened. I've seen various reasons why it may not have happened yet. Currently the corruption Blu-ray is the best way to see it uncut and with the grindhouse feel, but also it is on Tubi. And to note, the reason it's on the corruption Blu-ray, as Adam said as well, is that Roger Watkins was predominantly a porn director and under different pseudonyms as well. But corruption is one of his greatest 
movies featuring Jamie G- Gillis, mm-hmm. Vanessa Del Rio. But his that fantastic iconic face paint of the sad clown. Exactly. Style. It's a very strange and all of his porn has this very strange, grimy, downbeat quality to it. And I'm sure we'll get into some of the others. But it's we have very a engaging. And oh, has yeah. A wonderful incredible story to tell. Yeah. And they're incredible. And they are really great 70s and 80s porn films. I would consider Last House on Dead End Street a roughie. That's. In in its very nature, it just feels that way. Maybe without the explicit hardcore sex, but it, it the overall tone of the movie is definitely that. And oh yeah, it starts from the first seconds. Doing a little research on this, it also says that the concept for the film came to Watkins after reading Ed Sanders' The Family book on Charles mm-hmm. Manson. Correct. Yeah, and the a lot of the info that's out there came from that double disc Blu-ray set. There's an interview with him. There's commentary with him. So a lot of this info does come directly from Roger Watkins, but also in the Fantastic Nightmare USA by Stephen Thrower. He reviews the movie, and then there's a little five or six question interview with him. So all the information that we are saying about the movie, and then obviously from the soundtrack, either comes from Adam for the soundtrack, or the movie does come from Roger himself. And I can't imagine, again, we were discussing this being on Tubi, watching it with commercials because the way this plays through is just that kind of frantic scene to scene. And I can see where Manson would be a a form of inspiration for this because as we're watching him, and you don't have to tell me that these people are on some sort of like methamphetamine or I, I called it, I think in the notes, old timey speed. Like it's very obvious. And there is this just absolute charm that Roger Watkins has. He's so dynamic. He is, he's whatever it is. He's got it. The man is just iconic and on whatever he's doing speed. He's got even more of it. I'm going to go ahead and state that is definitely the first time in the history of discussing (laughs) this movie that Roger Watkins has been said to have charm. I, I love you for that, Tara. I oh, love you for you. that. Oh, thank you. Do you like that that's who I... Well, it, but, it would. It is, it is, is entrancing, and he is fantastic to watch, and it's not some... Watching somebody go on a bender and scream into a camera or watching somebody stiffly say their dialogue and then it's engaging in that way or that a scene goes on too long. This movie zips by. It's 175 minutes. And no, it no. The, zips the, by. the original cut is 175 minutes. Oh, okay. the, the cut that anyone has seen or that we watch is 78 minutes. So that Sorry. is why it zipped by. It's 78 minutes and it zips by. <laughs> but, but but I can't imagine what a three hour version of this movie plays. I want to see it. I'm going to need to see by. it. I think it might zip by because I'll tell you what, dripping in charm, got a lot of my favorite elements, a really cool guy who likes to talk in a very charming way, emphatically, and is passionate about something bunch of cool gals that go along with them and just have a broad outlook on life. And then it has masks from Greek tragedies, which fantastic. I love that element. They're super creepy. They're very serious masks. And I think that they play out so very well. I just hope that someone cuts out this section of Tara talking about this movie. And that's the only information someone has. And then they watch the movie after what Tara just said, because well, there's some extreme <laughs> violence as well. And that's just icing on the cake. Incredible. So the reality of this movie is that it is truly nihilistic. It is truly dark. And what, this movie to me, why some movies that go for that don't hit or at least don't have the lasting effect that this does is because more so than what's happening on the screen, you're thinking about the motivation and the Mm -hmm. reasons that someone would make this. And you're thinking about the maker of this movie and for people who didn't, see the the blu-ray or dvd or had seen it only before those came out like steven thrower when he was watching it there was no information and all there's all pseudonyms so you didn't know that the main character is also the writer and the director there was no way to know that 
I found myself watching this time thinking about the motivations of Roger making this movie and the pure seething hate that comes off the screen in a completely unmanufactured way. No studio backing, no 8 million mm -hmm. people working on the movie. This is such a small crew and one person's vision that ultimately ends up being this very powerful to me, more powerful than a, a movie that has a budget, a movie that has sound that matches up with the people talking that has a, a, a flow that makes any sense at all. The mm -hmm. way this is made, there's no, because we've seen this so many times you get in the rhythm of it, but there's no way to, the linear aspect of this movie is out the window. You, it's hard to tell exactly who everyone's relationship is with everybody and when everything is actually happening. But to me, that just adds to the psychosis of this movie. But I think if you've ever done a drug, it makes perfect sense as to the pacing of this film. And then you add some masks to it and a couple, not inconsequential characters, but the, the ancillary characters to this thing. It does make for a confusing watch unless you've consumed it a few times. It's also, it, there's two other films that I guess it reminds me of, which in terms of tone and one that's very obvious because of the nature of this film is Snuff from 1975, also loosely based on Charles Manson and the Manson murders and Cannibal Man, which was another film I think I'd seen around the same time, 1972 by Eloy De La Iglesia. Uh, also known as the apartment on the 13th floor, but it's also a very nihilistic, negative, and vicious movie. With almost seeming to have no redeeming value. Like th That's how I thought of this movie probably the first time I watched it was like, this is miserable, it's gritty, it's ugly. The plot centers around a failed porn director who decides he wants to make a snuff film thinking he can sell it, I guess is the, the capsule pitch for this movie of which there didn't have to be because this is just one methed out guy and some friends making a movie, some non actors that he just recruited to be in this thing. And the setting of an abandoned building is so grimy. The, way everything is played and the onset drug use makes everything else feel even nastier. I don't really even know how to parse it watching it again after having seen it 20 years ago. And yes, exactly. We didn't even really discuss what the entire movie entails, but yes, basically Roger is Terry Hawkins is his character's name is setting out to make snuff film. And he does it by going with people that he's who have wronged him. He's he just gets out of prison for drug dealing and has been in prison and gets out and basically wants to enact revenge on people who have done him wrong in his life. And he basically tricks them into coming to this abandoned building and putting them in his own snuff film. And then the scenes of the murders are so again, something I think about and talk about a lot with gore in movies why I'm so attracted to 70s and 80s movies that feature heavy gore is because of the realism of what they're doing. And by that, they're really using actual organs, animal organs, yes, yeah, they're but they're really intestines. getting their hands in some actual gore slop. The actors and actresses are definitely in an uncomfortable position that yes, obviously they're not being murdered themselves, but they're tied up. They're covered in this disgusting gore. They're not getting paid. It feels so visceral and off that it's something that I go back to with this era of movies and why modern gore is not something I'm interested in because this, again, I always think about the motivations behind making this and thinking about Watkins, why he did this or what attracted him to do this and got to make this gore snuff feature 
pornography based. It all feels like it comes from a very truly negative and nihilistic place with no pretension of making art with no pretension of even really making a quote unquote horror movie again. Yes, this is definitely October appropriate. Yes, it is in the category of horror, but to me it hits on a very different level than most other movies that go under the genre of horror. Mike. Okay. So much along the lines of, of what you were just saying upon this watch, some different elements really did strike me. And I don't know if it's because we've seen this many times or I was just in such an exhausted headspace. In my mind, this was a statement to people who are like, I'm the most extreme because Terry Hawkins is making a film that's a snuff film because he's been around these people who think they're being transgressive. The pornographer's wife does her face up in blackface and then she gets whipped by somebody and he's a hunchback like Andy Milligan style and they're saying, come on, quasi. And they're trying to have this really far out sex party, but everyone is bored. The Her husband is in the other room. He's smoking a cigarette. He's trying to show somebody a new film because he's absolutely disinterested in it. And I think that little element also speaks to what Roger Watkins was feeling about what people were thinking of as extreme film. Oh, you want an extreme film? It's like this. You try to be so extreme, but what it does is it comes off as boring because it's not honest. Like she wasn't doing some honest thing. She was just trying to put up some inflammatory face paint and then have somebody whip her because those are elements that she thinks of as shocking. It's not, this isn't for shock value. This is for truly being nihilistic, truly being destructive, truly being chaotic, truly going into something with an absolute frenzied passion. And I think that's what struck me differently this time on a more adult watch. That's incredible look at it. And I absolutely agree with what you're saying and agree with that. They wanted excitement and they got it and he delivered. And I think that was also like a subtle nod. Oh, you want an extreme film? Here it is. And much like experimental music, it's not fully a porn and it's not fully gore. And it's something that is its own thing. But that's what makes this so fantastic. But and you have really an individual dynamic character that can change the whole thing. And if you tried to sedate him, if you tried to give him a script that was other than the way he speaks, it wouldn't work. And that's what's awesome about a dynamic director's vision or a dynamic actor's vision is that they're coming out. That's what's great about Charles Manson is just listening to him talk. I think that's half of it is just hearing a Charles Manson interview and hearing the things he says. They're wild. And even when Watkins would make the porn movies, the sex scenes were almost the last thing he cared about when he was making the movies he was more interested in getting the opportunity to make these movies in his way. And her name was Lisa is one, the pink ladies is one and corruption is really the, in a way, probably the pinnacle of his adult films and available. All those movies I just listed are available from vinegar syndrome and highly recommend all of them. And you can tell that he was interested in making something else than just the run of the mill Pornography, but really a lot of the stuff from 70s and 80s, I wouldn't call run of the mill, especially looking back on it now. But what he was doing is something very different and something very demented and something very specific. Yeah. And then you add on this soundtrack. This soundtrack is incredible and out of the norm for this sort of movie in terms of there's one if you're making a porno flick or a roughie or something, you're going to have whatever kind of soundtrack to it, funky, jazzy, whatever music behind it. And this has one track that might be typical for a different seventies porno, but not this movie, right? It's out of place even here. And then everything else is, yeah, this largely electronic music, concrete tape music soundtrack that really the strange nature of it amplifies how off-putting the film itself is, how not cobbled together, but how everything is held together in this weird nebulous form of all of these elements that don't quite make sense, make perfect sense as a whole. And 
there's some killer tracks on this soundtrack. There's a lot of stuff, like Adam had said, by Eric Peters and by David Fanshawe. And then there's a few other things. There's the Ron Geeson tracks that starts with a Lewis Stern track, Pulse of Terror, which is a simple, weird heartbeat sound with some atmospheric and gong droning and some metal scraping. And that's one of the things we'll see on this a fair bit. There's a companion piece to that called pulse of fear, but there's some kind of envelope or something on the heartbeat that is closing the filter a little bit nastier. It just, it it makes the track grosser and emptier. It's more unsettling the pulse of fear and the pulse of terror. But the Eric Peters pieces, a lot of electronic tones. There's almost some soothing stuff on something like space movement. It's more electronic blips and collage. Psycho theme has some really mean feedback over these wavering tones. There's some definite delay play, electrophere's electronic warped tones some delay ringing out and some of that tight metallic delay with some slower bass oscillations under it. And Adam said, using just some little snippet from a track as a sound effect for stabbing on this movie, that says a lot about the movie itself. That really does say just a lot about what this movie is and what this soundtrack is to it, to accentuate these really uncomfortable gritty situations this movie's portraying oh absolutely and i was psyched to know that my favorite track on the album is the track that adam was discussing that's the bc people under different names i the celestial cat we actually oh tara we looked up the pronunciation i dropped of course i dropped it Tara, will you try to pronounce it better than I? I can't remember what it's spelled. Show me the word. Oh, man. The it's Celestial. Can- Cantabile? Cantabile? There you go. The no, celestial- not there you go. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Yes, that's what I'm saying. There you go. The Celestial track is my favorite track on the LP. And yeah, yeah again, the, I would imagine thinking about seeing this before anyone knew that's where the sounds came from just adding to the psychosis of the movie thinking how did they make this soundtrack who made it was it him how did this all come together and again the confusion lying in all the credits being pseudonyms just had to add to all that and then seeing this before you could look any information up that insane psychosis of this movie is just even the little information you have now, it doesn't take away in any way. It's not one of those movies that you find out that it's it was just some that it was just some normal guy who was just trying to make him. This is as real as it gets as far as what on the screen. Yes, obviously it is a a work of fiction, but it blurs the lines more than most movies. I think other low budget independent films with people making their own soundtracks. One of the first things that pops into mind is uh, Chester Turner's black devil doll from hell. That soundtrack is a lot more fun in parts and upbeat and hearing something like this where, yeah, you don't know, especially at the time of release and with any info that you could get with this, what this soundtrack is, what it was, if the person made it to go along with this movie. And there's some really great pieces on it. I, my favorite track is actually Cybernetics Fast, I think, by David Fanshawe. That one I really like. It's really psychedelic, like slow burn psychedelic thing. Reminded me of the orgy scene in All the Colors of the Dark. That groovy, sleazy. I, 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 really I like said that. that I thought it was very Cannibal Holocaust. I can see that, too, as well. Because it has that almost funk element. I love it. It's fantastic. But then... It's funny, Fanshawe, with my favorite track, but also some of my least favorite tracks, which are the Destructive Powers and Nightmare tracks, which are a lot of delayed piano kind of effects with some turkey-like wailing and acoustic slamming. They're not bad, but when you put them next to, I don't know, one of his other tracks, Terror Noises, which is just sheet metal thunder and some tambourine. I love that. I love the variety of stuff on here. The tonal monophonic 
melody of the celestial track, which moves into this form of dissonance at the end. But there's also a couple things on here that give me like a Popovu feel to them. The Dawn Odyssey track in particular definitely has that oh yeah feel. Mm. And the Ron Giesen tracks are great agonism with a really cluttered soundscape, acoustic clatter and almost bee buzzing synth sounds in the background. And the track that's the final one on the compilation, Omination, which I had to look up, which is the act of prophesizing, which sounds like warped cat meows or bat screeches with some rhythmic warble under it, propelling it. But I cannot tell what the hell that sound is. It is maybe it's just friction mallet. It sounds really grotesque and using a bit of that for a stab. Sure. Yeah, I was thinking like a wailing pig, that stab sound. But I like, Gray, that you referenced a turkey wailing because I've never quite thought of a what sound a turkey would make wailing. And now I am and I'm enjoying it. <laughs> yeah, it all adds up to great companion to watching the movie with these tracks, but then also just listening to the album with the tracks. And yeah, if you haven't heard it and you do listen to it, you'll see why we asked about the inclusion of the more funk track, because while it is in the most, one of the most iconic scenes in the movie that, which is the the scene where the woman is in blackface getting Mm -hmm. whipped at a party. It is obviously it's the song of the album. So where it sits is strange, but you're on Last House and Dead End Street, so you can't get comfortable. So even if you were too, if you were comfortable listening to the abstract stuff, then that defeats the purpose. It brings you out of that comfort, like this entire movie brings you out of that comfort. So it did need You've to be in there. Fallen into an abyss of resentment. Absolutely, you did. You do need it in there because it adds to the entire atmosphere of the soundtrack and of the movie. And yeah, this soundtrack is great. The packaging is great. This is one of those really, obviously, as you heard from Adam, it's a passion project. This is something that they wanted to do. They took years to put it together and didn't care about, they they wanted it to be what it needed to be, no matter anything. So hats off to that. It's a great endeavor and so happy to have it available. On the extra segment over on the Patreon today, we're going to talk about some of our other favorite horror soundtracks for the month. But I did want to relay something from the Stephen Thrower write-up in Nightmare USA because I think it really gets to what the effect of this movie and how this movie could affect someone in the state that Stephen Thrower saw it back in the 80s. This is when Thrower was in Coil. This is the height of their insanity let's say so i'm gonna go ahead and read from nightmare usa which obviously one of the most essential movie books of essential when watkins was eventually interviewed it came as no surprise to me to read that the director had been off his face on amphetamine when the film was made i first encountered last house on dead end street in just such a state with two fellow speed freaks chris barber and grant petit It was in the late 1980s, a time when we would seek out the most OTT movies to feed our own amphetamine psychosis. We had been up three nights and days and were entering the fort, 84 hours of wakefulness, sustained by regular intravenous refueling. A perfect audience for the film's icy, arty antagonism. Speed shuts down your tender feelings, wires you to the harder, colder side of your personality, and when taken for long periods of time, fosters a powerful sense of social disconnection. Factor in the hallucinatory state that occurs when you deprive yourself of sleep for such a long time, and it's easy to see how a film like Last House on Dead End Street can speak to your condition, like some bubbling vileness from within. So that state that they were in mm-hmm. watching this makes perfect sense because that bubbling vileness is something that comes across. You don't need to be in that state. It's a movie that puts you in that state just by yes. hitting play. And if you're looking for something that can really dig in and get under your skin in a way that other movies can't, Last House on Dead End Street 
is something you should look up for this month or any month, anytime you're hearing this. And again, just to remind you, like we said, you can watch it on the Tubi app or as an extra, a hidden extra on the Corruption Blu-ray released by Vinegar Syndrome. Any last thoughts, guys, on Last House on Dead and Straight, the movie or the soundtrack before we hop over and talk about some of our other favorite soundtracks? Haven't been able to shake this movie for 20 years since seeing it, and I don't think that this viewing and listening of the soundtrack is going to help. Absolutely great. Everyone, go listen to and watch Last House on Dead End Street. You have been listening to Noise Extra. Noise Extra is brought to you by Chondritic Sound, a home to noise artists for over 20 years, by Verdant Weapons, maker of quality contact microphones and noise devices, and by our Patreon supporters. You can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash noise extra, and your support really helps. You can find us on Instagram at noise extra, on the web at noiseextra.com, one E in those, and on Twitter at noise extra, with three A's at the end. Thank you for listening to us and to noise.